Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for the bigger picture today, where I'm joined by that titan of commentary, uh, Professor Tim Evans. Uh, Tim is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. We have three topics we're going to get through, I hope, today, Tim. But where are we going to begin? Well, I think we've got to start with the international monetary fund because as we watch the war in ukraine advance uh, as we watch um inflation uh continue to take hold in north america right across europe and many other parts of the world driven for a whole variety of reasons clearly connected to um covid lockdowns supply chain disruption um Putin's war against Ukraine, and what that's, for example, doing to food markets. Um, there's an awful lot of economic woes out there in, in Britain. Uh, Liz Truss, as Prime Minister, has gone. We now have Rishi Sunak, and Rishi Sunak, like so many politicians elsewhere, is actually beavering away at trying to work out how to respond and what to do, given all these financial and economic woes. And, and in amongst all of that, I think it, it, it's wise to look at the IMF. The IMF, of course, is an organisation that was established in July uh, 1944, very much part of the really uh, what became the, the post-war settlement and, and a whole range of institutions that fell from not just the Second World War, but I think also some reflections on, on, on the previous war, the, the First World War. Um, and, and basically the idea was that um, the, the IMF, although it was started initially by a core 40 countries, um, and, and it's always in a sense been dominated by the United States, because really the US did very, very well out of the, the Second World War, and by the end of the war, they, be, they were becoming, you know, they become the world's dominant economic power. They had the world's primary reserve currency in the dollar. So, so the IMF was established and it was really there to support governments uh, make tough decisions when they get into economic trouble. Mm. And the IMF, um, born of what was called the Bretton's Woods Settlement, uh, although that really broke down in many ways on the monetary side in the early 1970s, the IMF is there to keep governments in check and politicians in check to make sure that their debts don't become uh, too out of control, um, that, that their public expenditure is kept in line with, with, with revenue from taxation. Um, and, and the key thing really about the IMF is that over and above national politics and, and certainly national pride, it's the institution that can step in when a country has got into trouble and and really be the punch bag, the excuse, uh, if you will, 
for most nationally elected politicians um, uh, when things go wrong to say, well, mm. you know, this is now out of our hands, quite frankly. We've handed over to the IMF and what they recommend we do is X, Y, Z. This is a facility, I should remind listeners, that Britain has used itself in 1976. Yes, rather ignominiously. Um, yeah, Britain went to the International Monetary Fund. Um, there were various meetings, as I understand it, um, in Mayfair in central London. Britain's politicians of all stripes have spent decades promising ever more education, healthcare, welfare, you name it. Um, uh, great swathes of British industry have been nationalised and Labour and Tory, uh, they'd all been at it. Uh, and basically, uh, the promises of our politicians had exceeded uh, what the National Exchequer was able to pay. There was a gap. And so uh, we were given a bailout. In, in effect, we become insolvent. Well, I think we were given more than a thousand million pounds, which in 1976 was a vast sum of money. And, and the IMF imposed some stringency some austerity, some cuts. So in the next year, for example, the NHS budget was reduced by around 10%. Um, and there were constraints on public sector pay and all the rest of it. That's the sort of thing the IMF does. But of course, the times are changing. Uh, now we live in a world where vast numbers of countries have lots and lots of debt. The United States has probably in excess of 23 trillion dollars of debt um, and there are other countries that are economically on the rise in southeast asia and in europe so we're living in a different world and i think there are increasing questions over the role of the imf and and uh what future it has yeah and only recently of course i mean many people have read the uh, the imf um, actually criticized um, um, economic policy, which is, is fairly rare. Indeed, it? it is rare, but, you know, it was actually during the recent IMF meeting uh, that was attended by Kwasi Kwarteng, um, where he was recalled uh, from that meeting um, to London and effect effectively removed from, from office. Mm. Um, the IMF leadership... Uh, have been very critical of the government. They said now was not the time to be reducing, um, um, you know, taxes without spelling out in detail what the government was supposed to be doing on the fiscal side. The money markets became unnerved by this, um, and and events overwhelmed not only the Chancellor of the Exchequer but indeed the prime minister. And, but those signals from the IMF leadership that they were not happy, um, I think sent very, very powerful political messages to London, but also very powerful messages to, to traders and, and to the markets. And of course the US Fed, uh, well, since then has continued to keep ahead, raising rates again in, in, in recent hours by another three quarters of a percent. So the dollar has continued to rise. Um, um, but yes, the, the IMF is very critical uh, of, of what the British government got up to. So um, they're very powerful. But, the, but I think the question for the future is, you know, in a world where, where power and wealth, if you will, is moving 
further to the east and, and places like Southeast Asia, will the IMF go on being the unifying force that it was in the post Second World War world? And also, there are other lenders now in you know in the market um, who who have, unlike the United States and, and, and much of Europe, they have serious pockets and serious reserves. Yes. We've talked, I was going to ask about China in particular, because we have discussed this on more than one occasion in the past, that China it seems very happy to um, provide money to countries where it would like to increase its influence. Sometimes, of course, finding that those debts can't be paid, it requires infrastructure on the, on the cheap. Um, so presumably China is the biggest competitor, is it, to World Bank? I mean, because the World Bank, uh, the IMF, sorry, I mean, the IMF is not that popular necessarily with those countries that actually are forced to turn to it. No, and that's often, I think, uh, because politicians and nations uh, often feel humiliated by it. Mm. You know, um, people like more money, for example, in this country spent on the NHS or they like more money for schools. They don't always attend to... Uh, our own national debt, perhaps in ways that they would be wise to do, and 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 yes, when these public services are given more money, and taxes rise, and through that you might lose a degree of competitiveness. Um, it's very difficult, isn't it, when when there's a gap between what you expect to have and that which you can afford, and so the IMF is never really going to be popular because. They're the people who have to bring us all back down to earth mm. and to say that they're rather like a, a parent. You know, they have to say, no, I'm, afro- I'm afraid we can't have that toy or that gizmo or that thing at the moment. We can't afford it. Um, and, and so very few people, very few opinion formers or, or politicians are going to say, oh, wonderful. I think the IMF does a splendid job yes. and they've really helped us out. That's not the game they're in. But they are in a more competitive market now. And there are other countries out there, particularly China, who have large reserves themselves. Um, they have, you know, uh, they've done very well uh, uh, in, 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 in these global waters for over recent decades. And, and also they want to uh, undermine, if you will, dollar hegemony. Um, and they want to move, you know, to a more multipolar world uh, where America is not the dominant force that it has been, mm. you know, particularly in a post-Soviet era. I mean, you, history may judge that the IMF's power really peaked in the 1990s once Soviet communism was 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 or collapsed, and that, quite frankly. Um, in the days of Clinton and Blair, really, the IMF and and the US dollar were the dominant um, mm. games in town. You know, they were the dominant players in town. But but I think China uh, and of course Russia and other players would like to compete, and they want to be seen as lenders of last resort um, and compete with the IMF. And and in competing with the IMF build all kinds of relationships um, with with various countries around the world. Now, what I don't know is whether China will be able to do this in a measured and sensible way and a way that's sustainable. 
my impression of China is that they've been, when they have reached out and done deals with governments, they've often been quite rapacious um, in their demands and their, uh, you know, they, they, the payments uh, that they require on the debt have come in various forms, not just monetary, but also an abrogation of various types of sovereignty. And I can see there being a backlash uh, against the, the, the approach that the Chinese have deployed so far. But these are early days. The point is that this is not the late 1940s and institutions that have largely gone unquestioned the last 60 or 70 years are now not only being questioned, but there are other rivals uh, knocking around the planet. And one can imagine the IMF losing almost its monopoly status as 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 sort of the, the lender of last resort. Yes. Um, and I think that's really important because an awful lot of politics and diplomacy and geopolitics will flow if if that monopoly is no more, if we move to a cartel or or a more bipolar approach. Okay, Tim, thank you. Um, let us switch to another topic. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Um, so, Tim, what is our, our next topic going to be? So I'm very optimistic and have been for some time uh, about the future development uh, that I think we're going to see in many parts of Africa, um, particularly in the last half of this century. And there was a very good article. It was under the long read series in the Guardian recently, and it was called Megalopolis, how coastal West Africa will shape the coming century. And um, it was a fascinating read. Um, the, the reality is that by the end of this century, Africa will be home to around 40% of the world's population. Um, and within Africa, nowhere uh, is this breakneck pace of development happening faster than on a 600 mile stretch um, of, of, of coast uh, between Abidjan and Lagos. Um, and this article in The Guardian was written by Howard French, who spent a major part of his youth um, on the uh, uh, African West Coast, um, and then didn't go to Africa for a long time, but returned recently. And really, this is an essay um, that, that maps the sort of growth that is occurring um, in West Africa, but particularly on this stretch of coast. And it really is breathtaking. And what's so important is not just um, 
uh, a sort of conurbation emerging. You know, we've had conurbations, um, you, you have them huge stretches uh, on the east coast of America. Um, Tokyo itself is part of an enormous conurbation that inhabits uh, a major part of the Japanese coastline. But, but what we're beginning to see now stretch from Nigeria, go right across Benin, Togo, um, Ghana, and, and into the Ivory Coast. Um, is is an urban landscape that is becoming, um, it's joining up, or it's gobbling up uh, towns and villages. Uh, it is conjoining um, cities. Um, uh, it is beginning to uh, see investment flooding in um, uh, and, and the building of infrastructure, major highways, um, uh, being built now and that will be some of them completed by the end of this decade. What we're seeing um, really is Africa's first colossal um, uh, and mega, megaopolis um, development uh, that, will, that will encompass several hundreds millions of people and, and that will become a powerhouse for prosperity. It's, it's an amazing essay. I really recommend it uh, to anyone who's interested in, 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 in the coming century and places on the planet where there will be tremendous growth and, and, and prosperity. One of the most important things I think about this area, although this is true generally of Africa in the broader sense, um, Africa has a very, very young population. Uh, whereas we, if you look at you know the, the the advanced democracies, if you look at Europe, if you look at North America, if you look at Japan, we're often we're increasingly talking mm. about um, healthy aging or an aging population, and and how can we all keep fit? Africa is is a continent dominated by youth, and that's so important because it's not just about having uh, a growing uh, an energetic workforce youth and the attitudes of youth also bleed into academia and the mindset that you see in politics. Um, when populations age, uh, they become uh, more risk averse. Uh, they become more, more small c conservative. They become less open to new technologies and new ways of working and, and new mindsets. When you have a young population, often there is a huge impact uh, on your culture, on your music, um, the way you think about public policy. We saw this in Britain, for example, in the post-war era. We had a baby boom, and it was no accident that off the back of that baby boom, you know, we saw a boom in um, new ways of working, new forms of technology, but, you know, a vast uplift in new forms of popular music and all kinds of things that spun off, quite frankly, from that youth um, culture into into various mm. forms of soft power, and and so it is it is seeing this vast megalopolis come to fruition, you know, in West Africa, combined with a very energetic and youthful population that has a high degree of interconnectivity. These are people who you know are not interested in repeating the mistakes of the past. Mm. They're not interested in, um, in you know, central planning 
or or or, or a past age of of big government, as I'm afraid too many people in that continent looked to in the 1950s and 60s. These are people who are budding entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they they like importing and exporting. Um, they like their tech, um, and whether it's retail or services, of course, these people can access. Uh, you know, the, the, the literacy rates are going through the roof. They can access online education. Uh, they increasingly can access uh, all kinds of, um, of of schooling. There's also a huge and very entrepreneurial and very dynamic education sector um, in Africa, um, but particularly in West Africa. Um, and there are lots and lots of women now and have been for some time in the workplace, uh, in education, entering the professions. What you're seeing is a very youthful, very dynamic uh, and also growing uh, entrepreneurial middle class, but they're doing it on a scale uh, that is literally unimaginable in Europe. Mm. All we hear in Europe is people leaving the north coast of Africa or trying to cross the Mediterranean or get into Europe. What we're increasingly blind to, and I, and I think I'm very sad about this, is there are an awful lot of burgeoning success stories in Africa, and, and we would do well to attend to them. And what's going on in West Africa, particularly on this coast, all the way, you know, I, I know about the horrors and the Boko Haram and the terrorism. I, I understand all that, but there's a subtext here that's all about an economic boom, and there's an awful lot of, of, of good news as well. It's not without its problems, though, is it? I mean, the article does point out that, um, you know, one of the big challenges is that the rather dreadful transport network, neighbouring countries not necessarily willing to cooperate in the way that um, would solve that. Talking about the predatory police who stop drivers and basically just take bribes virtually wherever wherever you are. I mean, it's all very well having entrepreneurs, but but you, you do need, presumably, need governments to provide infrastructure unless they're going the way that we did in the Industrial Revolution and, and having tolls for transport. Yes, all, the, all those bad things. It rather reminded me of late Georgian England um yes. you know uh, bad, bad bad experiences on the highways dick turpin yes. you know the infrastructure didn't quite work but but what you've also read is that people are asking serious questions about these practices now that there are really really high quality uh roads being built not being planned being built um there are toll roads that are being built uh rather like you know on the french model of toll mm. road um really super fast expressways um, and although the article doesn't say it, um, the article makes it clear that it's hoped that these roads will be policed better. And one can imagine uh, reputable private companies getting the contracts to police them and those practices being stamped out. So, yes, there are problems and the article acknowledges it. But the really big picture um, view of the article is that um, is that those problems have been identified and that there is a wall of money. That's, I think, the mm. key thing. There's a wall of money uh, that is now coming in to face those problems down. And yes, there have been countries in the past that haven't always integrated in the way that they should. You know, it, it, For example, it talks about Benin, you know, uh, as sort of being between uh, Nigeria and Togo and, 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 and not really pulling its weight. But the point is that the uplift now from the prosperity and, and the entrepreneur, on the entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, riches mm. uh, of this project are so great that actually political elites um, are becoming um, 
um, uh, sort of habituated to the process. But the point is, it's gaining a sort of uh, snowball effect, and and it's creating a cycle and a momentum of its own. And that's what we saw in England in the Victorian period. That's what the Japanese saw over a hundred years ago. Um, this explains, you know, a lot about how California developed. California, I think, has is just about or has just overtaken overtaken um, Germany as one of the world's biggest economies. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, California continues to rise. What we haven't seen in Africa before is a conurbation on this scale. Yeah. With you know this sort of economic planet that that can suck in and benefit all kinds of out of the way traditional moons. Thank you, Tim. Well, you mentioned California. I think that's going to be our final brief topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. We're having a conversation with Tim Evans, a professor at Middlesex University. Tim, what's our, our final um, briefish topic? So an extraordinary story um, that was reported by Matthew Lynn in The Telegraph that was largely ignored um, I, I, uh, elsewhere, in, in, certainly in the British media. Um, Bloomberg uh, have noted uh, that California... Uh, will very soon overtake Germany in the rankings of the world's largest economies. Um, California has been for some time a, an economy larger than France, and, and quite frankly, it left Britain uh, behind uh, more than half a decade ago. But it, what California represents is this extraordinary mix, mixture of science and technology finance and culture and of course sunshine and the good life mm. um, um, and and you know as an economic planet if you will it carries on growing carries on booming and it seems somewhat irrepressible it had a minor dip um, in its uh, uh, in its um, uh, GDP following the two, 2008 um, financial crisis and, and no doubt it would have had a little bit of a dip uh, with COVID, but it's an area that attracts, um, you know, ever more people. I mean, it, as a state, it's got nearly 400 listed companies with a value of more than a billion dollars. Um, and, and that compares, I mean, Germany's got just over 150 companies at that level. Mm. Uh, so California is an absolute powerhouse. Um, and what's really remarkable, I think, is that, that, that California as a state has um, just under 40 million people and it's achieved all this prosperity, this colossal economy. But you compare that to what, what have we got? 67 million people in Britain and, and 80 million in Germany. So this is a, you know, this California is, um, has a, a comparatively small population, but... Mm. It, it 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 reaps extraordinary economic rewards. Now, the author of the article, Matthew Lynn, he argues that we should be able to copy um, California's success, that apart from the sunshine, everything else is, you know, is fairly similar, including rather dysfunctional political um, system. I mean, do you go along with that? Well, um, what I think is so different 
is that California in for most of our life Simon it represented a kind of dream okay and the dream was um you were doing well in life if you somehow got into an industry that you liked and you got into a building that was some kind of maybe skyscraper um and it had air conditioning and the higher up the building you went the better you were doing because you know mr big or or mrs big or miss big or whoever was somehow at the top of the building and and california sort of represented i mean downtown la with its skyscrapers represented a lot of that spirit and and it, that spirit was shown through hollywood um you know when we were kids in the movies and the, on the tv but then california in the 80s seemed to renew and refresh itself through silicon valley and it conjoined this this culture that it has with with the soft power of hollywood with this uh new high-tech world and yes i think britain could do it um but we have the education we have people we have the population we have the skills we are also a euro atlantic power if i could put it like that um uh, and, and we look globally but i just don't think we have the audacity and the vision that californians have had um not only in, in in recent decades but but really for the last hundred years um when they build a road they build a road uh if they need to expand an airport they expand it um in britain there's a lot of nimbyism and there's an awful lot of question marks um you know we struggle to 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 think through or even build a high-speed railway that's not a particularly californian mindset to have so I, I, you know, I admire what the Californians have achieved. Do I think it's realistic that we could replicate that? Well, maybe we could, but I see no sign of any politician um, really heralding that kind of audacity. And I don't really see uh, any major swathes of the British electorate who, who would be up for it either. Um, I think we're an older, a more small c conservative population um we just don't have the zippy go for growth mentality um that that that, that california represents uh in the united states tim thank you very much indeed that's it for the bigger picture for this week tim i hope will be back with me in a fortnight's time the bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.